Hi, Crimes of Passion fans. Just a reminder that I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Until then, let's find out what happened to Catherine Knight after she skinned, dismembered, and cooked her boyfriend. Then be sure to follow Female Criminals on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, sex, domestic abuse, murder, and body mutilation that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. It's often said that there's a thin line between love and hate, and no one knew that better than Catherine Knight. She lived her life dancing from one side of that line to the other, rarely staying in one place for long, emotionally speaking. On one side, there were thoughtful gifts and passionate sex. On the other, violent abuse, screaming tirades, and streaks of violence. But eventually, it seemed Kath had enough. And when she reached the end of her rope, she found herself left on the less romantic side of things. And this time, her partner wasn't getting away as easily as the others. She'd have her pound of flesh out of this one. She'd have it all. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Richardson, and today we're wrapping up the story of Catherine Knight. Last week, we watched Kath grow up in the small town of Aberdeen, leaving a trail of abused partners in her wake. Today, we'll learn about Catherine's shocking crime, her dubious plan to get away with it, and explore the impact she had on Australia as a whole. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by NARS Cosmetics. Reflect your radiance with a two-step routine of best-selling makeup skincare hybrid formulas. Start with NARS Light Reflecting Foundation for customizable coverage and long-lasting wear that enhances skin's natural luminosity. Pair with NARS Radiant Creamy Concealer to effortlessly brighten under eyes with crease-resistant coverage and 24-hour hydration. Radiate from within. Shop now at NARSCosmetics.com. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. By the beginning of 1994, 38-year-old Catherine Knight was in a relationship once again. She'd met her new boyfriend, John Price, at the local pub one night, and things moved pretty quickly from there. They spent most nights at John's house, practically living together. Now, I know that when you hear that, you're probably thinking about an explosion of romantic passion, or perhaps even a shotgun wedding. But there likely wasn't much traditional romance blossoming between the two. 
Of course, we have to keep in mind Catherine's relationship history, namely that she was reportedly abusive, physically and psychologically, to each of her earlier partners. It's likely that this new relationship got serious so fast because of Kath's possessive nature, rather than any genuine notions of love. And as for a wedding? Well, that seemed unlikely from the jump, mostly because 38-year-old Price was still legally married to his ex-wife, Colleen. She'd left him about six years earlier, but according to Peter Lawler in his book Bloodstain, Price never really got over Colleen. To wit, there was apparently never any animosity between the two. He deposited money into her bank account when he knew she was going on holiday and bought her a brand new fridge when she told him she was looking at buying one second hand. In short, he wanted her to be happy, even if it wasn't with him. It was likely the memories of how happy he'd been with Colleen that drove Price to maintain their marital home exactly as she'd left it when she walked out. The curtains didn't change, the furniture stayed as they had been, even his wardrobe looked untouched, just a little emptier. And though Kath wanted to put her stamp on things, reorganizing the kitchen, redecorating the living room, Price put his foot down. It was his house, and it was staying the way he liked it. Besides, Catherine didn't even really live there. As a single mother, she was entitled to more robust welfare payments if she lived alone with her kids than if she moved in with Price officially. So all in all, you'd be forgiven for thinking that this relationship was fated for a quick death. But somehow, Catherine and Price made it work. He seemed content to have a companion who was happy to take care of him, and it was likely that Kath was determined to finally make something stick. Plus, she seemed to genuinely care for Price, at least initially. On their first anniversary, she gave him a card, declaring that she loved him with all her heart. You might remember that Kath couldn't really read or write, so finding a card and then putting her own personal message for Price inside it was a mark of just how much she truly cared for him. Before we continue with Catherine's psychology, please keep in mind that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. Last time, we mentioned that Catherine left school when she was around 15, having never learned to read or write. And while we don't know any other specifics about her education, it's possible that she had anxiety about the written word as a result. In their 2010 article, Understanding Reading Anxiety, New Insights from Neuroscience, doctors Mary Rank Yalongo and Ann Hirsch point out that children who never learn to read might actually have a fear of doing so. Looking at research from multiple sources, Yalongo and Hirsch explain how a child struggling to read might experience anxiety in the classroom setting, based on their own interpretation of how their peers and teacher react. By repeatedly pairing a seemingly innocuous stimulus, like being asked to read aloud, with this perceived negativity, the two ideas become linked. Again, we can't be certain that this is how Catherine felt about reading, and if this cycle contributed to her illiteracy. But if it did, it could offer some insight into the scope of her feelings for John Price, that she willingly sought out a token of affection that required her to read and write. 
And for a while, that spark of romance was enough to carry the couple through. No longer tied to her job at the local abattoir, Catherine settled into the role of doting grandmother to Price's grandchildren. In recent years, she'd started taking sewing classes and found she loved making clothes for the little ones. That said, being with her family was one of the few options Kath had left when it came to spending her time. She didn't have many friends in Aberdeen, and that's not exactly surprising. Everyone in town knew it was best to steer clear of Catherine Knight, because while she could be affectionate and loving when it suited her, she also experienced uncontrollable bouts of rage. In one story, Kath's eldest daughter, Melissa, was drinking at the local pub one afternoon. Without warning, Catherine showed up absolutely fuming. Just what provoked this fury is unclear, though it's possible the teenager wasn't yet 18 and her mother didn't want her drinking underage. Whatever the case, people said that she marched over to where Melissa was enjoying her drink and smashed the teenager's head into the bar, then shoved her to the ground. Eventually, she dragged Melissa across the floor of the bar by her hair and led her out to the parking lot. There, she beat the girl's head into the side of a van, then pushed her in and drove away. Through it all, the rest of the pub's patrons watched in fear, too scared to intervene. Kath's reputation had them rooted to the spot. In his book about Catherine, Peter Lawler notes that Melissa denied the event ever happened and claimed it was one of those stories that seems to emerge fully formed in small towns. But even if that's the case, it's still a clear indication of the kind of violent behavior people expected and believed of Kath. But it seems the stories about Kath's violent temper didn't dissuade Price from continuing their relationship. And now that she had him ensnared, Kath had no intention of letting Price go. One night in March of 1995, she apparently tried to get him to commit to the relationship more seriously. To be fair, they had been together for about 18 months by that stage, so it wasn't an unreasonable request. But Price wasn't interested in offering more commitment. He told Kath that he was just in it for the fun and that she could like it or lump it. Well, as you can imagine, Kath didn't appreciate just about anything her boyfriend had just said to her. In her position, another person might have cut their losses and called it quits. Not her. You see, Kath had had a few drinks that night, and so her judgment was, let's say, clouded. So she went home, swallowed a handful of pills, and instructed her teenage daughter, Natasha, not to call the ambulance. Whether she truly meant to complete suicide that night, we'll never know. But she was rushed to the hospital and back home by the next day. And after all that, she was still determined to hold on to Price. By now, their relationship had settled into an uneasy pattern. It seemed he was over the drama and her moods, but she refused to withdraw her claws. Whether or not she truly loved him is up for debate, but Kath wanted him to finally divorce Colleen and marry her, and he clearly had no interest in doing either. But Catherine was tenacious, and the couple eventually started telling people they were engaged. Though when Kath wasn't listening, Price told friends that he'd only agreed to the arrangement to keep the peace. 
He explained to his bewildered mates that Kath had simply bought herself a ring with his money. It's possible that wasn't the only thing Kath bought with Price's money, even if it was the most metaphorically resonant. Besides, access to Price's wallet was certainly a perk of the relationship. In fact, it might have been a big factor in why she was so keen to hold on to him. His job at the nearby mine paid very well, and it seems she saw dollar signs when she looked at him. That greed eventually colored her once rosy outlook on the relationship, and in 1997, when he again told her he wanted her out, she said she'd go for $10,000. It felt fair to her, an equitable exchange that was no less than she was due. But as much as Price wanted Catherine out of his life, he wasn't going to pay her. He even made a point of telling her that she'd get nothing out of him. He'd written his will so that his children inherited the house when he died, perhaps because he knew she wanted it. Hearing this, Kath was furious. She'd invested almost three years of her life into this relationship, and he expected her to leave it empty-handed? It was typical. John Price was a waste of her time and energy, just like all the rest of the men she'd been with. And she'd made every one of them pay. They got what was coming to them in the end. She'd cut them off from their kids, run them out of town, even killed a beloved dog. And Price? He was going to get what he deserved. She'd make sure of that. Coming up, Catherine gets her vengeance, and then some. Massive spiders, fierce crocodiles, violent kangaroos. With all of the dangers lurking within Australia, one species remains feared above the rest humans. Hi listeners, it's Alastair from Parcast, and I'm hosting a new Spotify original called Crime Down Under. Every Sunday on Spotify, take a trip to the oldest continent for some of the most shocking true crime cases in modern history. Featuring a compilation of episodes from shows across Parcast Network, Crying Down Under exposes the vicious serial killers, mysterious disappearances, and terrifying crime families whose stories still stop Aussies dead in their tracks. From the beaches and deserts to the cities and suburbs, the land down under may be vast, but the horrors are hiding around every corner. Catch a new episode of Crime Down Under every Sunday. Listen free only on Spotify. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Now back to the story. Sometime in 1997, 
41-year-old Catherine Knight finally decided to leave her boyfriend, John Price. Theirs had never been a particularly happy relationship, but Kath still felt like he owed her something at the end of it. After all, he had plenty of money and a nice little house. She deserved something of his. But when Price told her he wasn't paying her a thing, Kath saw red. Then she made a plan. Price would pay all right. One day when Price left for work at the local mine, Catherine waved him off from the kitchen. She smiled at his disappearing truck, never letting on that she was calling it on their so-called romance. While he was at work, Kath rushed around Price's home, gathering up every one of her belongings and packing them, ready to take them back to her own house just around the corner. Then she pulled out a video camera and took careful footage of some key pieces around the place, all things Price had stolen from the mine. Then she sent one copy of the footage to the local police station and another to his employers. As far as spiteful acts go, it seemed somewhat tame for Kath, who'd shown just how violent she could be in the past. But the videotape had a disastrous effect on Price's life. He was fired from his job, losing his sizable income, the long service leave he'd accumulated over the years, and his retirement fund, all in one fell swoop. And there's no way he didn't know who was responsible. It was a calculated, devastating parting shot from Kath, the kind of scorched earth move that should have left Price furious and unforgiving. But for some reason, it didn't. Eventually, he landed a new job, but ended up with the same girlfriend. Just weeks later, the pair were back together, and this time, Kath made it clear that she wasn't messing around. She told Price that this time, they were in it until death. And she meant it. For at least the next year or so, the relationship, such as it was, carried on without any major dramas, at least none that were out of the ordinary for the couple. But sometime in the spring of 1999, Kath stabbed Price in the chest. And while he survived the incident, it left him rattled. He called friends in tears, telling them that he was scared for his life and for his teenage children. But Kath did her best to get ahead of the story. She visited her lawyer and the local police, telling all manner of stories to explain away the stabbing. She didn't realize she was holding a knife. She was only pointing it at him. She tripped. She wasn't wearing her glasses. And besides, she said, it was all his fault anyway. It was more of the same from the violent woman who still wasn't over Price's refusal to give her his house. Now, years into their dance, she'd seemingly fallen out of love with him, just like all the rest. But she'd be damned if she was going to go through another breakup, not when there were other options available to her. Towards the end of 1999, Catherine told her brother Charlie that she was going to kill Price. As simple as that, like she decided to change her hair color. If she couldn't have him, and it certainly seemed she couldn't, not really, then no one could. And she'd get away with it, she explained, by pretending to be insane. Of course, this declaration was somewhat alarming to Charlie, but he waved it off. 
His sister had claimed she was going to kill John Price several times before that, and clearly she hadn't yet. So what was there to worry about? Dear listener, there was so, so much to worry about. At the end of February 2000, an argument broke out, and it turned violent quickly. When police arrived to break things up, Kath tried to play things down. Yes, they'd grabbed each other by the throat, she admitted, but now that Price had let off some steam, there was no need to worry. She rejected their suggestion that she spend the night at her own house. She'd never admit it to the police, but to do so would be to cede ground to her enemy. She couldn't let him have any kind of victory. She couldn't let him feel like he'd won. In the end, police prepared apprehended violence orders against both Kath and Price. Not quite a restraining order, AVOs are typically used in Australia for cases of domestic violence. It's essentially a court order that forbids the use of threats or violence against whoever filed the application, with room for further restrictions and penalties if it's breached. In this case, the police made applications on behalf of both Kath and Price, but only Kath's was filed. Court officials decided that, based on their experience, it was usually the woman who needed protection, so the order against Kath was essentially forgotten about. So it was John Price who was served with a court summons the next day, not his abusive partner. But rather than get angry, he asked for help. While Catherine watched on suspiciously, he led the police officers into another room so he could speak in private. He wanted Kath out, he said, but the cops said there was nothing they could do. If he wanted her to leave, it was a problem for the courts. Of course, not knowing what Price said to the police made Catherine furious. She wondered whether they were conspiring against her. She wouldn't allow him to tell lies about her, she resolved. She wouldn't be thrown out, left behind, discarded. Not again. It was time to act. That night, she pondered her plan while John slept beside her, and she wondered, should she do it now? It would be so easy. He was asleep, helpless. She slipped out from under the covers and moved to stand at the foot of the bed, waiting, deciding. That's where Price saw her when he startled awake in the early hours of February 29th. She was staring at him, her arms tucked behind her back, concealing a knife, perhaps? He didn't know, but the image terrified him. At work just hours later, Price told some of his colleagues what had happened. It was clear to everyone that he was genuinely terrified of his partner, so they encouraged him to take the day off and go to the courthouse right away. Unfortunately, because the AVO against him had already been filed, Price couldn't take one out against Kath. He'd have to wait three weeks, the clerk told him. Desperate, Price lifted his shirt and showed the clerk the stab wound Catherine gave him months earlier, but the official's hands were tied. Price was on his own. Not knowing where else to go, he spent the afternoon at the pub, downing beers and turning down offers of a place to crash. He figured he had to draw the line somewhere, and he wouldn't let Catherine drive him from his own home. 
Price's hesitation to accept material help from concerned friends and the fact that his request to file an AVO against Kath was denied reflects a troubling trend in cases of partner violence. In 2014, psychologist Slatka Rakovets-Felser published a report on domestic abuse and violence. The report looked at the kinds of violence that might go unnoticed and what factors contribute to that. Dr. Rakovets-Felser noted that in cases where women are injured by a male partner, the man is charged 91.1% of the time. But when the roles are reversed, the female abuser is charged in only 60.2% of cases. Exploring the disparity, Dr. Rakovets-Felser cites a 2007 study theorizing that because men are socialized to be strong providers for women and children, they can have difficulty expressing their emotions, including fear of their abusive partner. Which of these things was in play for John Price, we can't say for sure. But it was clear that he was having a bad time of it, and no one quite knew how to help him. Meanwhile, Catherine was focused on her own problems, such as they were. She spent the day visiting the few friends she had, as well as the local police, telling anyone who would listen about how Price had assaulted her. Then, that night, she spent time with her children and granddaughter, enjoying dinner at the local Chinese restaurant and documenting the night on a video camera. It was a little after midnight when Kath walked from her house to Price's. Inside, she slipped into something a little more comfortable, a sexy black nightie she'd bought that same day. It was a special occasion, after all, and despite what she planned to do after, Catherine was determined to have sex with John Price one more time. He was never able to resist her in bed. None of them were. So she seduced her battered partner one last time. And then, well, Catherine insists that her memories stopped there. The next thing she remembered was waking up in the hospital. Anything else, she said, she didn't know. But we know. Though it doesn't seem like Kath ever gave a full account of what happened next to police, various sources help us put things together. The following is based on court records and Peter Lawler's book, Bloodstain. It started in the bedroom, right in the bed, with the handle of her best boning knife wrapped in her fist. Kath plunged the blade into Price. It wasn't the first time she'd stabbed him, it wouldn't be the last. Terrified, 44-year-old Price pulled himself free of the sheets and rushed to the door. He fumbled for the light switch, leaving blood on the walls as Kath gave chase, stabbing him again and again. Eventually, he stumbled out of the bedroom and made a last desperate dash for the front door. But Catherine had no intention of letting Price get outside. He was so attached to this house that he refused to give it to her. Well, she'd make sure he'd never leave. She chased him, painting the hallway with his blood with every stab and slash of her knife. Even riddled with dozens of stab wounds, Price rested open the front door, so close to freedom. But he barely got a hand on the doorway before Kath dragged him back in. Either that or he inexplicably stumbled back indoors. And that's where John Price died, just inside his own front door. 
Catherine Price just kept stabbing until the man she'd once written her only love letter to was dead in a pool of his own blood. But Catherine's night was just getting started. With Price dead on the floor, she got in the shower to clean off the blood. Then, perhaps feeling like she deserved a reward for her hard work, she pulled the bank card from her late partner's wallet and drove to the nearest ATM, which, when the pub was closed, was in the next town over. There, she withdrew $1,000 before heading back to Price's home to start the real work. Not that it was a chore she didn't relish. Kath had always loved her work at the abattoir, and tonight she wanted to relive that glory. She also wanted to claim a trophy from her hard-won kill. Absent majestic horns, John Price offered up only one option. Kath grabbed one of her sharpest knives, and slowly, meticulously, she skinned Price's rapidly cooling body. When she was done, she held aloft a horrifying human pelt, which she hung from a meat hook in the doorway to the kitchen. Perhaps she wanted Price's ghostly shape to watch what she did next. Because although she'd never been a great cook, Catherine had a feast to prepare, and the first step of that was to separate Price's head from his body, which she did with expert precision. Then she placed it into a large pot on the stove, surrounded by peeled and chopped vegetables. While that cooked, she sliced several steaks from Price's buttocks. She placed two of these on a baking tray in the oven. Then, to complete the meal, she whipped up some gravy. No one likes a dry cut of meat. When it was all finished, Catherine served up her lector-like feast on two plates, one for each of Price's children to find. By then, dawn was getting closer, but there wasn't much else to be done. She cleaned herself up a little, smashed some of Price's family photos, and retired to the bedroom where it all began. There, she swallowed a handful of pills, antihistamines and blood pressure medication, and lay down on the bed. She knew someone would find her eventually, soon probably, but she'd be ready for them. The game wasn't over yet. Coming up, Catherine Knight's final desperate move. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Now we finish our story. 
In the eerie early hours of March 1st, 2000, 44-year-old Catherine Knight murdered her partner, John Price. Then, like something from the worst slasher film, she skinned and decapitated her lover's body and cooked parts of him in his own kitchen. And just like the killer in a movie, Kath expected to get away with her crime. But to do that, she had to be patient and wait for someone to notice Price was dead. Luckily for her, that didn't take long. A likable friend and punctual colleague, Price's absence at work was noticed quickly that morning. And after what he'd told people about Kath, alarm bells started ringing almost immediately, as did Price's phone, but there was no answer. Still, Price's neighbor Anthony could see that his friend's truck was in the driveway, which meant he had to be home. So when the calls continued to go unanswered, he crossed the street to get a closer look. He and Price had shared a few drinks the night before, and perhaps he thought his mate was feeling a little hungover. But John Price didn't come to the door when Anthony knocked. He didn't come when Anthony called out his name. And that's when Anthony noticed it. Blood on the door handle. Now even more worried, he walked over to Price's bedroom window and tapped softly on the glass, hoping that might wake his missing friend. Then, when it didn't, he banged louder. By this stage, word was spreading that Price was missing. Friends and colleagues all over Aberdeen called each other, hoping they'd find him. But of course, no one had seen him. So eventually, the police were called. It was around 8.15 that morning when a pair of cop cars pulled up to Price's usually quiet street. Concerned neighbors gathered, drawing closer to the brick house. They were eager for information, even if they felt sure that the news wasn't going to be good. The officers took a lap around the house, peering in one of the windows. It was dim inside but light enough for them to spot a strange shape hanging in the doorway between the living room and the kitchen. Eventually, someone grabbed a crowbar from the back of Price's ute, and the cops forced their way in through the laundry door. Then, one by one, they headed into the silent house, while anxious onlookers waited outside. With every passing minute, tensions in the street notched higher. But that was nothing compared to what was going on inside. Most of the curtains were drawn in the house, so the officers had to wait for their eyes to slowly adjust after the bright morning sun. But when they could make out the chaos in front of them, one of the first things they found was John Price's skinned, decapitated corpse. If that wasn't bad enough, they were then confronted with the horrific sight of his lifeless skin hanging on a hook, a vicious slash across its throat and countless stab wounds scattered over its torso. In the kitchen, the floor was washed with blood, which was also sprayed on countless other surfaces. On the kitchen counter, Catherine's stomach-churning feast waited, with makeshift place cards made out for Price's children. And of course, the disgusting mess left behind by the meal's twisted chef, a head in a pot of stock, a tray of human steaks, a congealing gravy. It was the stuff of nightmares. 
The police found Kath in the bedroom, asleep under a bedsheet on the floor, and escorted her out of the house. The whole team left. No one wanted to be in there any longer than they had to be. Plus, they knew they needed to preserve the crime scene. Outside, word spread quickly from police to friends and neighbors, John Price was dead. And it looked like Catherine Knight was the killer. But Kath wasn't talking. After taking so many pills, she seemed completely out of it, unaware of just about everything. It seems likely that at least part of that was due to the medication. But you might also remember that Kath once told her brother that she planned to kill Price and that she'd get away with it by pretending to be insane. Was this part of that very plan? If it wasn't, it seems like one hell of a coincidence. Not that investigators knew that just yet. All they could see was a woman who very clearly murdered her partner, but who also needed medical attention. So while detectives from a few towns over started putting everything together, Kath was bundled into an ambulance and taken to the hospital. When she finally became lucid again, Kath seemed unaware that Price was dead or that she killed him. Conveniently, though, she remembered exactly what medications she overdosed on. Her medical care depended on that, after all. After she was stable, Catherine was transferred to a psychiatric unit in Maitland Hospital, and that's where police came to interview her a few days after the murder. By then, she'd lawyered up, but still claimed to have no memory of the crime. Before the questioning, Kath's lawyer told detectives that they could have only 15 minutes and that her client didn't want to know anything about what happened in Price's house. Well, the detectives managed to wrangle an hour-long interview out of Kath, who told them that the last memory she had before waking up in the hospital was going out to dinner with her family. Whether they bought that or not, the officers told the 44-year-old that she would be charged with John Price's murder. Her response seemed like a calculated objection to the very idea, but you haven't even told me he's dead yet. Already, Kath didn't like the way things were going. It wasn't working out exactly like she'd planned it. In her mind, the police should have told her that Price was dead so that she could perform her shock and despair. But they skipped over that part and cut right to the arrest. Meanwhile, the media had caught wind of the case. At first, some local papers had printed vague details about the murder and about Price's decapitation, but it seemed no one really knew what happened. But on March 7th, a week after the murder, the Scone Advocate published an accurate account of the crime on their front page, and suddenly, the story was everywhere. Of course, Aberdeen locals had been gossiping about the murder all week, swapping stories they'd heard from mates on the police force or whispered details from relatives. But now, an early contender for crime of the century was being discussed on the national stage, in print and on television. While the country discussed her atrocious crime, Catherine Knight was denied bail and taken to prison to await trial. And inside the jail, she seemed to flourish. She had endless time for crafts, enjoyed plenty of attention from her peers, and did work to keep the facility clean. 
In letters to her family, she told them that she loved it there. And that's where she stayed for over a year, largely without incident. Although there were reports that when another inmate mentioned Price's murder, Kath's temper got the better of her. What that episode looked like, we aren't sure. At a preliminary hearing a month after the murder, prison psychiatrist Dr. Michael Jufrida declared that while she was technically fit for trial, Kath wasn't guilty because she was in a dissociative state during the murder. However, Dr. Jufrida's opinion wasn't the only one taken into account. In June of 2000, forensic psychiatrist Dr. Robert Delaforce spent two days interviewing Catherine and came to a very different conclusion. He produced a lengthy report on Kath, her life, and her mental state, and suggested that she was living with chronic PTSD, which might have been caused by trauma from her childhood. He also suggested that she lived with borderline personality disorder. Crucially, he also drew the conclusion that not only did Kath know what she was doing the night of the murder, she also knew that it was wrong. He theorized that she might have even enjoyed it. Dr. Jufrida disagreed with Dr. Delaforce, which led to something of a stalemate. Each side had their expert opinion, which could have led to an interesting courtroom showdown. Except then, Dr. Rod Milton was asked to weigh in. He was renowned in Australia for accurately profiling serial killer Ivan Milat long before he was captured. And unfortunately for Kath, Dr. Milton threw his weight behind the prosecution, discrediting her team's plan to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. He said, quote, the personality problems demonstrated in the history of Ms. Knight's life are not, in my view, psychiatric diseases. They are her nature. These personality problems did not stop her from knowing what she was doing or whether it was right or wrong, nor did they stop her from exercising control of her actions. Despite this setback, Kath's plan to plead insanity remained unchanged all the way through to the beginning of her trial in October of 2001. Then, on the first day of proceedings, she changed her mind and pleaded guilty. It seems likely that Kath was finally able to see the blood-smeared writing on the wall. She wasn't going to get away with killing John Price, all she could do now was try to mitigate her own sentence. But either she didn't recognize the gravity of her own crime, or she just underestimated everyone else's view of her. During sentencing, the prosecution called the murder of John Price an atrocious and gravely wicked act. And that's probably the gentlest way to describe what Kath did. Justice Barry O'Keefe quite agreed. He pointed out that the last minutes of John Price's life must have been a time of abject terror for him, as they were a time of utter enjoyment for Catherine. As such, he sentenced her to life in prison without the possibility of parole, the first and only time a woman has ever received that punishment in Australia. Back in Aberdeen, many of the locals likely breathed a sigh of relief at the news. Catherine had cast an outsized shadow on the country town for a good portion of her life, and to know that she wasn't ever going to return must have been a relief. 
No one wants a convicted murderer living in their community, least of all one whose crime was as twisted as Kath's. And knowing that they were free of that possibility, locals probably tried to forget all about Kath and what happened to John Price. But for some people, the damage was already done. The memories were unshakable. Kath's ex-partners, the ones who survived, the police who discovered her bloody crime scene, Price's relatives left behind. For them, the images were likely too real, too traumatizing to ever let them forget what happened. But around them, Australia moved on. Though cases like the Backpacker murders and the Snowtown murders are seared into the nation's collective memory, something's different with this case. The horror from the small town of Aberdeen, which would seemingly define any other place, is all but forgotten. Just why that is, it's hard to say. Perhaps it's because Kath's a woman, and maybe people find women inherently less frightening than male killers. Or perhaps it's because the truth of her crime was so stomach-churning that few wanted to discuss it. Then again, other women known for their sensationally violent crimes became figures of pop culture repute. People like Lizzie Borden and Eileen Warnos. Their stories are celebrated in nursery rhymes and puzzled over in Hollywood films and series. So what is it about this tale that invites only stilted discussions in hushed tones? Why are some female criminals turned into revered anti-heroes and others forgotten? Maybe Catherine Knight wasn't young enough, beautiful enough, or from the right town to deserve our lasting attention. Or perhaps it's because in the 20 years since her crime, Kath has largely kept a low profile in prison. Her fellow inmates call her Nana, or Grandma, and she teaches people how to crochet. She practices pottery and plays cards, and seems to finally be living a stable life. To this day, Catherine Knight's file is marked never to be released. And when you think about it, maybe that's good for her. Maybe it's what she needs. It's certainly what she deserves. Thanks for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a brand new story. For more information on Catherine Knight, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Bloodstain by Peter Lawler extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Joel Callen, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Hi there, it's Alastair from Parcast. You may have heard of the Somerton Man, Azaria Chamberlain, or the Wonder Beach Murders. But do you know the whole terrifying truth? 
Be sure to check out my new series, Crime Down Under, where we travel to the land down under to explore the most shocking true crime cases in Australian history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Crime Down Under, and catch a new episode every Sunday, free and only on Spotify.